Are we going to advertise this? Do we want people to listen to this? Uh, I wasn't going to, like, advertise it, really. I feel like post on the, uh, there's a December subreddit that's pretty active still, I think. I don't think those people would like this show. <laughs> Here she comes in her Hello, and welcome to We Both Podcast Together. The Hazards of Loving the Decemberists, which is somehow still the title of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Matt Esner. And I'm Pete Wissinger. And today we are talking about the Decemberists' second studio album, Her Majesty the Decemberists. It is weird that the name of the album is Her Majesty the Decemberists. Right. So uh, I, I was doing a little research about uh, about self-titled albums, and this is sort of a self-titled album. I mean, it's it's almost more uh, more self-titled. I guess, like it's it's more self-titled than like a regular self-titled album because it's drawing attention to the name. Well, what's interesting is looking at the album cover. It's not clear that the title of the album is Her Majesty the Decemberists. Oh, you're saying like it could just be Her Majesty, and then the name of the band is on the banner under. Okay, it. yeah, it could be that, but it it is titled Her Majesty the Decemberists. That's the name. Canonically, the name of the album. It's a very odd naming convention for an album. Right. Well, I mean, but the thing is, like, it's not an odd naming convention to have a self-titled album. Right. But that's not what this is? I I would say this is the Decemberists doing a self-titled album. Huh. I never thought of it that way. I mean, so most most bands, when they do a self-titled album, a lot of times... Not, maybe not most, but a lot of times when a band does a self-titled album, it's their first album. Sure, unless you're like Wilco, and then it's your, what, like seventh uh, I don't know. album? Yeah, it's it's deep in the catalog. Well, and, and also like the Beatles. Like, I don't know how far down the list White Album is, but that's technically a that's self-titled. Uh, or if you're Weezer, like all of your albums are self-titled, except for like three. I mean, same with the first four Led Zeppelin albums. Right, yeah. What would you say your favorite self-titled album is? Out of all the self-titled in general, albums that exist, of bands that you like that have self-titled, and you albums. say the White Album, yeah, counts? sure, that's self-titled. The, the the White Album, really? That's your favorite one? Sure. Yeah. What about like, they might be giants. There, they have a self-titled album that's pretty good. I don't think it's as good as the White Album. Well, I'm not. It doesn't have to be as good as the White Album. I'm just saying, it is also a self-titled album that you could like. Sure. Also, the White Album is like, it's like. 50% good. So you're saying if you edited the White Album down to a one CD mix, it would be an amazing album. Yeah, you album. could make a really good album out of the White Album, but it's two, it's a, it's a two disc or two, two LP, two album uh, record, two record album, whatever. There's two. It's called a double LP. There you go. That's what it's called. That's what they call them. And yeah, I mean, there's like, there is a definitely a uh, uh, album's worth of garbage on that album. Um, anyway, so should we talk about Her Majesty the Decemberists? Let's talk about sophomore albums. Yeah, sure. That's a good place to start. Uh, because I, I feel like for a band, the sophomore album is important because your first album is probably a collection of songs you've been working on for a while. Um, maybe songs you've been playing live for years, songs that you maybe already recorded and are kind of tweaking to make better. Um, but then if that really works and you all of a sudden have a fan base you didn't have before, the sophomore album's got a lot of pressure riding on it. Yeah, well, and oftentimes there's uh, pressure from your album or from your label to to get out something like your if your first album opens the door and you get some attention, then, you know, sometimes you have pressure to put out something that moves as many units or, you know, that is done in time to sell after your first tour is over. Well, and I feel like what you're trying to do with the second album a lot of times is capture the magic that people liked on the first album, but not just copy and paste. Um, you're trying to add another dimension or uh, at least like fulfill the promise of that first album. Um, can you give me examples of sophomore albums that were better than the first album? Just like, I'm sure there's lots. But. Uh, I would say Lincoln is better than They Might Be Giants because that was already top of mind. I would say Led Zeppelin 2 is better than Led Zeppelin 1. Uh, and again, since I already mentioned it, I think Pinkerton is better than, than Blue Album uh, in terms of Weezer albums. Uh, where do you stand on... Black Mirror versus Funeral. Oh, Funeral is a masterpiece. Black Mirror is 
is a struggle. Oh, a struggle. I think it's good, but you're right. It's not as good as funeral. If you're feeling sinister. Wait, you think that's better than tiger milk? Yeah, you don't. I don't know. That's a toss up for me. I think it's. Well, I mean, they're very similar albums, but I feel like if you're feeling sinister is is, uh, definitely, I don't know. It's better in my opinion, but it's got more, more good songs. Well, and I will say uh, we've mentioned the band a lot, but In the Airplane Over the Sea is incredible. So good that they only put out two albums. What band made that one? Uh, That'd be The Neutral Milk Hotel. I was going to, you know, try to make it this whole uh, episode without mentioning them because we we talked about them a lot the last episode. But then like, well, here's the thing. I think that this is the last time we'll talk about them because I feel like with this album, nobody mentions Neutral Milk Hotel when they talk about the Decemberists anymore. Yeah. Well, and spoiler alert. But when we get to the review, um, it's going to come up again. Ah, okay, we'll save it for then. We'll save it for But then. not in the way you're thinking. Okay, then. So this album was recorded in January and February of 2003 for the band's new label, Kill Rock Stars, um, and then was released in the fall of 2003. What were you doing in the fall of 2003? Uh, in the fall of 2003, I was starting my senior year of high school. Oh, good times, right? What about you? Uh, well, I would have been starting my sophomore year of college because I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you. You are a bit older than me. Uh, what, what I, I think I would have been officially a philosophy major at that point because they made me pick a major and (laughs) I had taken, I feel like if you're undecided and they force you to pick a major and you pick philosophy, that's just you saying, screw you to the university. Well, it was, it was really me saying, screw you to math classes because when I was mm. when I was picking a major, I deliberately picked one where I didn't have to take any any high level math or really low level math. Like I was like not good at math, sure, and I was not going to take a math class if I didn't have to. And I, I mean, you could have majored in English. Well, yeah, that was an option, but for whatever reason, I ended up taking a, a logic class, and the head of the department was my teacher, and he he sort of sweet talked me into becoming a philosophy wow. major. Swindled by a philosophy professor. To be fair, he is all. He was also a lawyer. He wasn't a practicing lawyer. Oh my god! But he was. He was used to making persuasive arguments. Um, so for this album, uh, there's a little bit of a lineup change going on. A little, little switch up. Little switch them up. Little switch them up happening. So who do you know is different on this album in terms of players? By the way, at this point, this is where Chris Funk becomes a full-fledged member of the band. Right. So we have, obviously, Colin Malloy singing, mm-hmm. playing guitar, right. probably doing a little dancing. I don't know. I don't know how their recording Maybe. process worked. Maybe. Um, we got Jenny Conley playing organ and accordion and God knows what else. Yeah. Uh, does she play hurdy-gurdy? I feel like she would play hurdy-gurdy if there's a hurdy-gurdy in uh, here. I think when I've seen them live, Chris plays hurdy-gurdy. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we got the funk master, Chris Funk. Uh-huh. He's probably playing, you know, pedal steel as usual, probably similar. Is there any like, pedal steel in this album? Who knows? I'm sure we'll find out when we listen to it. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, all right. So we got, who else? Who else? Uh, on drums. Uh, I think new drummer. It's a new drummer. Oh, that's right. Cause yes. it's not, it's not, uh, Ezra anymore. Nope. Uh, so this is Rachel Bloomberg. Uh, Rachel Bloomberg is a drummer and backing vocalist for the band for this album, Picaresque and the, uh, EPs that land between. Oh, nice. Interestingly enough, there is no Nate Query on this album. That is interesting. Uh, the bass player is someone named Jesse Emerson. What do you know about Jesse Emerson? He's in other bands. I, I looked him up. He's a Portland musician. So, like, I don't know if, like, Nate was busy or uh, if there was some sort of falling out. Although, of any member of the band to be a diva and leave, I feel like Nate would be the bottom of that list. I didn't really get a lot of research on this album in general um, in terms of what was going on. I know that um, Colin Malloy said in an interview that this album had a, a smaller gap between the songs being written and recorded than anything they'd ever done before. Well, yeah, because I assume they were, you know, feeling the heat from their first album kind of being, a, you know, however well it received it was, they, they wanted to get out there and and get back into the studio. I mean, I th- he also said that he thinks that it is a uh, a more of a collection of songs like that, a little bit more cohesive than Castaways and Cutouts, which I would agree with that in general. It's a pretty, I would say, different feel from uh, Castaways and Cutouts. 
Really? Because I was I was just about to say, like, this album feels like if if Castaways and Cutouts is Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is Last Crusade. Like, basically, they just took the template of the first one and they're like, this works. Let's just do it again, but make it slightly different. But think about what's missing from Castaways and Cutouts. It's missing that kind of like a dreary, melancholy kind of mood that's throughout a lot of Castaways and Cutouts. Um, I'd say it's in general a lot brighter. You're saying this this um, is is brighter than Castaways and Cutouts. Big time. Okay. I mean, especially in terms of production, if nothing else. Sure. Yeah. But like, you know, there's no if you think about Castaways and Cutouts, most of the songs are pretty slow on that album. Because you've got Cocoon, Clementine, and Grace Cathedral Hill. And there's not this is overall a much livelier album, I would say. All right. Like it seems like they wanted songs that were more fun to play live. Yeah. So they made this album. Well, shall we get into it? Uh do you have any more kind of like facts at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh let me look at my notes real quick to make sure I didn't miss anything. You sitting on anything? Got some got some good tidbits over there? <laughs> that's what I'm that's what I'm looking at. Uh skimming my notes. Thankfully you can edit. I'm going to tell you something like I I keep hoping it comes up organically, but like in part of my research, I was doing research about the band Cowboy Mouth uh, because I liked the band Cowboy Mouth. And I found out that one of the guitar players in Cowboy Mouth is Ellen DeGeneres' brother. Well, I'm I'm really glad that that came up organically. (laughs) Well, I know it's never going to come up organically, so I'm just throwing it out, just throwing it because I I've given up. I've given all right, up. All right, we have to just start talking about the songs. So, <laughs> all right. So track one, Shanty for a Roof. Nope, nope. You go ahead and say it. Uh, track one, Shanty for Arethusa. To sail on a packet full of spice, romantically. Or Arethusia? They never actually say it in the song. What is Arethusia? Is it? Oh, it's the name of a ship. Oh, okay. Shanty for the Arethusia. So yeah, I kind of tried to look that up. Uh, there were multiple British ships called the HMS Arethusia. One in the 1800s, one in the 1930s. However, apparently this song, in addition to multiple songs on this album, um, are references to lines from Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood, which is uh, a poem that Colin Malloy was really into. So, yeah, that's at least this song and... uh, Billy Liar, the next song, both have specific references to Under Milkwood, which, okay, I guess I said it's a poem, it's a, a radio drama from the 1950s. And there's some line about the Arethusa in that. Huh. Yeah, super well, interesting that's, stuff, that's right? Interesting. So here's something I wanted to talk about. I feel like the Decemberists are very intentional with opening tracks on their albums. I would say as most bands are. Sure. I suppose that's fair, but they seem to put songs at the openings of albums that they also that also work as like openers for concerts as well. Okay, yeah, you could open it. Like for example, where would this song fit anywhere on the album except as an opener? You know, it's hard because of the way it starts. It's kind of a it's kind of a wake up call. So how does the song start, Mac? It starts with a blood curdling scream, which. I actually did a little research. I think it's performed by Carson Ellis. That is Carson's scream. Okay, yeah. So it starts with a scream and then a little uh, ominous uh, ominous music comes up. Well, speaking of Carson Ellis, by the way, uh, so she, of course, does the album art for this. I really like the album art for Her Majesty. It's good. It's it's the uh, three huddled soldiers in the trenches. Well, it actually folds out to a much, it's a very like long art piece. I used to have like the full thing as a poster. So it's, This is just one scene, one scene from it. But it's definitely a reference to soldiering life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this, you get that like creaking ship and then this 
terrible scream. Right. And uh, yeah, it seems like we've got a song that's about pirates and ghosts and ghost pirates or pirate ghosts. Yeah. Which is usually when I'm when I'm trying to describe the Decemberists to people, I usually do it in a sort of tongue in cheek way. And I'm like, if you like songs about ghosts and pirates and pirate ghosts, you will like the Decemberists. Sure. Yeah. So far, so far, that's not really I don't think it's really any converted anyone yet. Right. It's better than my sales pitch, which was uh, (laughs) indie rock for theater kids and English majors. Right. This song has a really nice build to it. It starts off kind of slow and spooky. This is a song uh, that frequently gets put on Halloween mixes I make oh. because there's there's not a lot of like good sort of canonical Halloween songs. So I just got to pull whatever I can. And this one's got a cool spooky vibe and it talks about ghosts. Yeah. So I'm I'm anointing it officially a Halloween song. This is a great Halloween song. So uh, this verse is really interesting to me. This tell the tale of the Jewess and the Mandarin Chinese boy. He led her down from her gilded canopy of cloth and through her blindfold, she could make out the figures there before her and how the air was thick with incense, cardamom and myrrh. What's going on with this, this woman and this little boy? Is it some sort of, so I assume they're on the ship, right? They're on, they're on the ship. Yeah doing stuff and i assume maybe the mandarin chinese boy is like a cabin boy or some sort of yeah some sort of like lower ranking short round kind of thing yeah maybe a lower ranking sailor and so he's taking her down to the hold uh for some sort of probably a surprise party or like a maybe it's like a maybe she's expecting and it's it's a it's a baby shower that the sailors are it putting is also on a her. decemberist song so it's probably not going to end no, well I'm, for I'm sure it's fine <laughs> like i'm sure it's just like it's just a, fu- a meet and greet maybe with the, with the captain and the crew maybe this woman is the mother from cautionary song oh man i bet there's there's just this whole shared decemberist universe that there's got to be it's just we're barely scratching the surface yeah you know i i i did a little research um because it's a term that comes up a lot and it's also you know, in the title of the song, what do you know about uh, sea shanties? Oh God, I just think of it as kind of like a traditional maritime song that sailors would sing. Yeah. Do you know more about shanties than that? Would you say that a shanty is the same thing as a sea song? Um. Yeah. Sure. Well, you're a fucking idiot because they <laughs> they're completely different. A sea shanty, a sea shanty is a work song. Oh, okay. It is a song used to synchronize work or to motivate sailors for where they work like the first song in uh in uh les mis okay sure i'm not a theater guy but look down look down that one you know no 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 that's not a sea shanty because one they're probably are they on a boat when they sing it uh i don't know they're pulling uh they might be working on a boat okay well that that question is not as important as this one during the singing of the song, is there a shanty man? A shanty man? Are any of those people shanty men who are singing the song? Can you tell me what a shanty man is? Well, so, you know, because a, a sea shanty is for work, you have you have one person who's sort of leading the work as the shanty man who sings these sort of more intricate lyrical uh, verses. And then the the rest of the sailors will sing the chorus. So like, you know, in, in a sea shanty, you would have the shanty man say something like, I once met a girl who was really sweet. And then the 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 all the sailors would join in with like, yo, ho, ho, or something like that. Something that they don't have to remember a lot of the words. They can just say it and it's, it's more like sort of guttural and instinctual. So the shanty man usually is the one with the better voice, a stronger voice and a better uh, vocabulary than the rest of the sailors. <laughs> well, uh... What else you got for me? Uh, so much. So much. The <laughs> the Wikipedia article on Sea Shanty is literally the longest Wikipedia article I've ever seen in my life. Did you read the whole thing? No. It's longer than the it's it's literally longer than the one about the Civil War, the American Civil War. So you're saying every time I've described a December song as like a sea shanty, I've sounded like an idiot. Exactly. To, to any sailor listening to this podcast. Any sailor is gonna be like, oh, so is there like a call and response? <laughs> Are they no? Are they yeah. sung without instruments? Because sea shanties are sung without instruments. So you're saying pirates' life for me is a sea shanty. I mean, it's probably pretty close to a sea shanty because it's something pirates sing while they're working. Right. So okay. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's actually. I mean, there's a lot of different types of sea shanties, but there's there's two main camps of sea shanty. Do you have any guesses what they would be? Uh. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to say that they're probably uh, dirty ones and uh, and and sad ones. OK, well, you're 
you're sort of close in as much as you said words. Uh, <laughs> so the, the two main types of sea shanties, you have a hauling sea shanty and a heaving sea shanty because as i mentioned they're for working so like so one's for heave one's for hoe right so heaving is a heaving shanty would be for something that involves coordinated uh coordinated activities that require short bursts of heavy exertion so like whenever you're pulling rowing or more more commonly when you're like pulling up anchor because you got a big you got a big heavy anchor and you got a big rope that you got to wind around a winch and so you need people to, to try really hard for short periods of time. And then like heaving would be more for activities that don't require, you know, coordination. So rowing, rowing would probably be a hauling one, but like heaving would be like, I don't know, like throwing a net or something like that. And some of them are short and some of them are long and there are all kinds of shanties. Matt, this is fascinating stuff. I'm glad we're all learning something here. <laughs> we're, we're trying. I feel like we're front loading, though, because we're still talking about the first song. Uh, anyway, real quick, this uh, ship is going to Australia. So I was wondering, maybe this is a, a prison ship. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, this is a cool song, but like it's not one. I guess you said you put it on a Halloween mix. That kind of makes sense. Otherwise, I don't, wouldn't really find myself seeking out this song unless I was listening to this album in its entirety. Right, right. Because the song itself doesn't super stand alone just as a rock song very well. Right. It works as a part of a whole. Good opener, though. It is a good opener, and it really does capture the mood. But then there's a very almost like jarring stylistic difference with the second song. Yeah. So let's move on to track two, Billy Liar. Billy Liar's got his hands in his pockets. To me, I feel like this is a much more kind of like twee song than anything on Castaways. It's very jangly. So, yeah, it's this like cute, jangly, bright pop song, um, which has these kind of like funny rhymes in it. The, The title Billy Liar, I would assume is a reference. There's a book and then movie called Billy Liar. Oh, really? I'm not aware. Yeah, so it's about, uh, it's a 1963 movie based on a novel about someone named Billy who finds their life very tedious, stifling, and boring and kind of wants to get away from it all, which I do feel like you get some of that in the song because it talks about uh, the mailroom shift gets a real short shrift as you dull at the packages, no one seems to want you around and sleeping in until your father's shaking you down. So you get the idea that this is some kind of like frustrated teen Almost sort of lacking motivation or lacking aspiration. Right. To- um, and apparently there's a lot of daydreaming in Billy Liar, um, which you get some of that here dreaming about, you know, being with a geisha. So is it like a Walter Mitty kind of uh, story? Yeah, it kind of feels something like that. Um, we got to talk, though, like, is this first verse, this, these first lines, is this about masturbation? He's got his hands in his pocket. Staring at the neighbor's knickers down. Are his knickers down? He's got his knickers down. How he, How is? does he have pockets in his... Where are the pockets? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what those... Because if his uh, knickers are down... Maybe it started with the hands in the pockets and then the knickers I see. So down. it's it's chronologically like... It's not all describing a tableau. Or he's looking at a male neighbor who is pantsless. Well, I think men and women can both wear knickers, right? I mean, I don't think that's a gendered... Right, yeah, because it says, Billy Liar's got his hand in his pockets, staring over at the neighbor's knickers down. He's got his knickers down. Whose knickers are down? Billy's or the neighbor's? Maybe both. Either way, why is Billy staring at his pantsless neighbor? I th- maybe it's an arrangement that they have. They're working something out. It's, it's like a thing. They, they both get something They're out like, of it. Is that what you're saying? Let's just agree to meet at this time. We'll face each other without knickers on. Yeah, sure. This is also apparently a reference to Under Milkwood because there is a character in that radio play called No Good Boyo, Mm. which it says here, all adrifting, he's a no good boyo. Sent to fishing for a whalebone corset frame, his only catch all day. Those are apparently actual bits from the poem. Oh. So there are specific references that we don't get. So it's a... It's a poem and radio play or it's just a radio play? Yeah, it seems like it's, it's a... He's a poet. And I think that it's like a radio play written in verse. I see. Well, that sounds horrible. <laughs> uh, I guess I could have done more research on Under Milkwood. but We'll uh, save that for our next podcast series, The Under Milkwood Chronicles. <laughs> right. About BBC 
radio dramas. That's what, you know, as much as I love podcasts, that's that's a genre of podcasts that I just can't get into is the radio the, drama, the sort of, yeah, serialized dramas as podcast. I listened to the first season of uh, Homecoming. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. All right. There's a Wolverine one that's apparently OK. Let's just spend the rest of this podcast talking about other podcasts. Hey, that's that works for me. Anyway, um, this song, for some reason, never super clicked with me. Oh, I love this song. It's fun. And I think that that like kind of bright, fun atmosphere really kind of, you know, if you think about these first two songs as a one two punch, the first song is telling you like, yeah, you remember all that kind of like uh, ghost piratey uh, sort of atmospheric stuff we did on the first time. We still do that. It's back, baby. Better than ever. But but we are totally kind of mixing it up here. Yeah, I don't know what most of the 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 lyrics mean in this song, but it's it's a fun song with uh you know, it, like there's more of a layered sound uh, for this album than the sort of stripped down five piece that they were in uh, in Castaways and Cutouts. And it might be about masturbation. So, I mean, uh, at least that first part. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so good yeah, song. this is this is just like a fun. It's a fun song. Yeah. All right. So that brings us to track three. Los Angeles. I'm yours. Although Colin pronounces it Los Angeles, which is kind of obnoxious. There is a city by the sea, a gentle company. Do you think think he's doing it like as an affectation or do you think he's like just, that's just how he says it? You know, I feel like... People who don't like the Decemberists pronouncing it Los Angeles is the kind of reason that they don't like the Decemberists. I mean, I don't, I don't think I don't think anyone really pronounces it Los Angeles, right? Like anyone serious, right? I mean, it, it's it has to be an affectation. Like it's not like a natural pronunciation. Yeah, but like it's not used for rhyming, is it? I don't think so. Yeah. So it's just it's it's just an odd choice. But he, in general. Makes a lot of odd choices when he sings, I suppose. So this is like, this is in the pantheon of songs that are sort of like simultaneously shitting on and celebrating Los Angeles. Yeah, like he's basically in this song like, this is a big phony and it's really gross and stupid and I love it. It's it's kind of like the most obvious take about Los Angeles though, right? I mean, that's it's the kind of like take that everyone celebrating the artificial nature of right it. like everyone knows that la is kind of fake uh this song has a string quartet on it nice is nate query in that string quartet <laughs> i don't think so he was too busy <laughs> but when you walking out on the band <laughs> when they play this live i think that it's just accordion i think there's some melodica in here yeah um, yeah there's a little melodica solo mm-hmm. i don't know i really like this song it's good it's got a sort of nice like um it's not a waltz but it's got like sort of like kind of a, a drifting, lilting vibe that's, I don't know. It's just, it's easy to like sort of picture yourself like sw- swinging around a room on the, I don't know. What am I saying? Like, this is nothing. This is a nonsense <laughs> comment. Um, I really like this, this second verse, this, oh, ladies, pleasant and demure, sallow cheeked and sure. I can see your undies. Uh, and then it goes on and talks about... Uh, you hill and valley crowd hanging your trousers down at heel. This is the realest thing as ancient choirs sing a dozen blushing cherubs wheel above. So it's like, you know, fake pretty people having sex and there's literally angels singing above them. Right. Like, yeah, uh, yeah I guess it's kind of playing on the irony of the fact that this fake, dirty, gross uh, kind of city is called city of angels mm-hmm. yeah and just that end how i abhor this place its sweet and bitter taste has left me wretched retching on all fours los angeles i'm yours yeah so despite its sort of reputation and, and what it does to him he's he's won over by it but don't you feel like this song is even more than most of those kind of tongue-in-cheek treatments of la i think it comes more firmly down on the negative yeah yeah i mean i think that's it's definitely easy to see it on that side. They have a lot of songs about California or, you know, they have more songs about California than they do about Portland, which is I don't know what that says about them. Well, don't you feel like when you live out west, California just kind of looms right in the same way that if you like live in the Midwest, like Chicago is just a thing. Yeah, just sort of 
sucks up all the oxygen of the of the Midwest. Like it's the, yeah, and and I feel like California is probably just like that for the West. Sure, yeah. Like you got to figure like even people in Seattle are thinking about California, right? Have you have you been to L.A.? Have you spent much time in L.A.? I have been. I, I was went on my honeymoon. We were in L.A. for I think four days. Yeah. What do you think of L.A.? I liked it more than I thought I would. That's where I would land on that. Okay. All right. But in general, this is a cool song. Uh, that lush string quartet instrumentation is definitely a step up uh, in terms of production from anything we heard on their last album. So, like, one thing that really struck me intentionally listening to these albums in sequence was how much of a step up this album is in a lot of ways. All right. So moving on, we're looking at track four, the gymnast high above the ground. Opening thoughts on this song. Uh, this is one I tend to skip. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's a nice song. It's very pretty. I think I, I, I mean, I like the finger picking at the beginning. It's got like some nice guitar work. I really like the guitar on this. I just don't particularly care for the song. So to me, this song kind of reminds me of, uh, what will be a song we'll talk about on the next album, Bagman's Gambit. Hmm. This kind of reminds me of Bagman's Gambit because it's kind of a longer song or does it just feel long? No, it's, How it's long. long. It's seven minutes and 13 seconds. Okay, yeah. It's a, but like, unlike a lot of their longer songs, it's not a multi-part song. No, no. He's just got a lot of, a lot to say in this one verse and chorus structure. I mean, I guess it has a lot to say. I do not know what these lyrics are. Couldn't about. tell you. I don't know if it's literally about a gymnast or if that's a metaphor or if it tells a story. I'm not sure. I I just don't care enough to find out about what the song is. But like, it's about. I don't know. It's a really pretty song. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be mad if I heard it live. Like if they decided to bust this one out on a live set, I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it does that kind of thing that uh, some of the albums on their last, there's some of the good longer songs on the last album did, which is it's got this build to it. Right. You know, a song like Odalisque or California One, where it kind of starts off quiet and then just keeps getting grander and grander as it goes. Right. I looked up, so the refrain says, through the tarlatan holes. I looked up tarlatan because I'm like, I have no idea what sure. that means. Sure, yeah. Do you know what tarlatan Absolutely is? Absolutely not. It is a thin, starched, open weave muslin fabric used for stiffening evening gowns. Hmm. What does that mean with this? I don't know. I will say this this song generally has a a sort of somber mood to it. Yeah, there's there's a, a melancholy to it that's that's nice. I mean, like I said, without knowing any of the words of the song, because I, I just don't listen to lyrics. Like I get I think I, I feel what they want me to feel with the song. I think knowing the words would just prevent me from like knowing knowing that that word that you just said is something about fabric. That that's that's <laughs> you already zoned Yeah, that's out. more of an impediment than to me enjoying the song. I'm sorry that I bored you, Matt. Could you talk for another twenty <laughs> minutes about the definition of a shanty? That would be much better. You know, I I, I did neglect to mention that a shanty, while they don't know exactly where the word oh came from, God. there's a lot of speculation that it's a bastardization of the French word for uh, singing, chante. Uh, it's just wow, spelled I, I, differently. This is this is brilliant. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I talked about the, this uh, album sounding different. Uh, this is they actually worked with producers on this one. They self-produced the first one. Is that correct? They did, and this one's produced by uh, Adam Selzer and Larry Crane, who I think were with Kill Rock Stars. Oh, nice. Uh, any other thoughts? Um, nope, nope. All right, track five: The Bachelor and the Bride. There's a wrinkle in the water where we laid on. Daughter, and I think the wind blows so sweetly there. Uh, this song kind of rocks. Yeah, this is a good one. Uh, this kind of reminds me of Odalisque in that it is this kind of more kind of muscular rock song with a little bit more of an aggressive uh, attitude to it than a lot of their songs. Right, and it's got some uh, it's got some electric guitar work in it. Uh, it does, you know. So the more more folk rocky than just folk and this one definitely tells a story would you would you care to share that story with us well so i will say this the title 
And I'm guessing the song itself was inspired by the artist Marcel Duchamp has a painting called The Married Woman Stripped Bare by Her Bachelors. Wow. That's intense. And I looked up this, you know, Duchamp is a surrealist, Dadaist artist. So I was like, I'm going to look at this art and see if that can help me figure out the story. But it's Dada. Mm. So it did not help me at all. Not a lot. Not a lot to (laughs) grab onto there. Not a lot. Uh, But like, listen to the lyrics. It says, there's a wrinkle in the water where we laid our first daughter. So like, you know, second December album, they're like, you know what? We haven't talked about a dead child in a while. We haven't killed any kids lately. Let's throw (laughs) throw a dead one in the water. (laughs) We got to kill a child here. Uh, Well, here's the thing. Did they drown the child or was the child dead when they put it in the water? I feel like there's probably context in the song that would help us figure that out. I'm also kind of curious about the bachelor and the bride, what that means. Is this woman having an affair? Mm. Uh, Yeah. You know, what's the situation that there is a bachelor and a bride? Right. Also, I love that this refrain has the phrase, I will box your ears in it, mostly because my grandpa always used to threaten to box my ears. I don't think I've ever heard anyone except my grandpa and Colin Malloy say that phrase. Do you know what it means to box someone's ears? Uh, is it when you take one one hand on each on each ear and, and clap them together? That is ac- absolutely what it is. Yeah. It's not pleasant. No, I imagine it wouldn't be. But yeah, this this bachelor seems like a douche. <laughs> <laughs> Some good uh good That's my textual analysis. And like there's definitely details in here that's telling a story, right? Like uh something about a medallion in her hands. The Baron of Her Belly. Like, I don't, I don't know. There's there's a, a, a story happening here that I just am not picking up completely. Uh, so let's move on to track six. All right. So track six is Song for Myla Goldberg. This song rocks. Do you know who Myla Goldberg is? She's a writer, right? Yeah. So she wrote the book Bee Season, which became a big hit. Oh. Which is about a girl named Eliza in a spelling bee. I see. There's a, there's a character in this song named Eliza. There is. Uh, and so I actually found an interview with Colm uh, with Malloy where he, apparently this song, is, he said that he liked Bee Season, but that this song, it says, uh, this song comes from an evening spent in Portland when Mila was in town doing a reading with a friend of mine. I was taken on as someone who knew his way around Portland and was responsible for the evening's entertainment. There really wasn't much happening that night, and we spent the evening wandering from club to club downtown. I was quite taken with Mila as a person and thought she deserved to have a song written about her. Wow. So he wrote this song after he spent an evening hanging out with her. Can you imagine clubbing with Colin Malloy? <laughs> well, I mean, what's a downtown club in Portland? Like? I have no idea. I mean, honestly, like... <laughs> I imagine it's just indie rock going on. Most of my experience with clubs is is like third hand from, you know, basically, sure. you know, TV shows about people who have more interesting lives than I do. And most of my experience with Portland is from Portlandia. So if you imagine those things coming together... I feel like that's exactly what it's like. Right. In which case, Colin Malloy absolutely belongs there. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's accurate. So this song has some of, I think, the best organ work in the Decemberist catalog. Oh, I love the organ sound on this. It's kind of interesting, though. I've heard it live where they do it all acoustic and Jenny does it on accordion instead. And it's really cool on accordion. So it's just a it's just a great song. Also, fun fact, it's it's our closing music uh, for this podcast. I did know that. Yeah. Just like I love the fade out on it. It's got a really uh-huh. good sort of ramp out at the end. Well, it's got the the whole tongue twister thing is really fun that. Th- yeah. They multiple times do these little tongue twisters. Can you do the can you do the tongue twisters? Funiculi, funicula, funiculi, funicula. All right. I know New York. I need New York. I know I need unique New York. That's impressive. Now you do Like it. you guys go. You get, no, there's no way I can barely get a sentence out whenever <laughs> I'm not when I'm just trying to say words that aren't you know, hard to say, but I, I, I feel like it's important to note, like, so I edit this podcast and Pete, Pete legitimately did that. I didn't do any editing trickery. <laughs> he did that. Both of those in the first take. Do you mean to try and do it three times in a row? Boy, do you want, 
you're just you're just playing here the fire we go. here. We're doing it live. Here we go. I know New York. I need New York. I know I need unique New York. I know New York. I need New York. I know I need unique New York. I know New York. I need New York. I know I need unique New York. Oof. Guys. This is, you know, I did college radio, Matt. So. Yeah. You also talk for a living. <laughs> yeah. Teaching is a lot of talking. Can I talk about, I love the the refrain to this song. Yes, please do. Still now you're waiting to grow inside your old just that, because like she's not very. She was just born in 1970, 71. So you know, in terms of acclaimed authors, you know, she would have been in her 30s. That's pretty young. Yeah, it's very young. Sew wings to your pigeon toes. Put paper to pen to spell out Eliza. So he's talking about literally her writing the book, because Eliza is the name of the protagonist in the book. Layers, so many layers. I mean, I don't know if there's layers, but it's neat. No, it's a great song and a great chorus. Yeah, it's fun. It's um, got that great organ music going. It's just, I don't know. Moving on. Track seven, The Soldiering Life. Ambling madly all over the town The call to arms you liken to a whisper I liken to a radio. So here's here's my question for you, Matt. How gay is this song? I don't think there's anything gay about it. <laughs> just just a bunch of men enjoying each other's strength. <laughs> but this is like, first of all, I, I really like this song. Yeah, it's about men who are physically intimate or or dream about phys- being physically intimate with other men. Do you think that that uh, whole uh, our rifles blaze away, we blaze away. Is that a metaphor? I don't think it's that gay. <laughs> it, there is something about World War One that gets romanticized, where it kind of, I don't know, I feel like World War One has a little bit of that kind of, uh, you know, when people kind of fetishize it in fiction, has a little bit more of that British charm than you would find in World War Two. Yeah, I feel like, Maybe in 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 the greater pop culture sense, the British are more so the heroes of World War One than than we are. Like World War Two is that's that's the war that we won. The Americans just kicked everyone. I think we butt. take credit for both. We do take credit for both, but I feel like we were there for less in World War One. I. I don't know. You're the history teacher. Is is that accurate? Yeah, we definitely played a larger role in World War Two for sure. World War One, we just jumped in at the end. But yeah, so this kind of gets at that idea, this song where it's like war is terrible, but you also feel very alive when your life is in danger Mm. and you've got, you know, a hot dude in the trench. Yeah. Yeah. So to to add fuel to the uh, Her Majesty of December, this is just a better version of Castaways and Cutouts uh, argument that I'm trying to put forth i feel like this is the this is like legionnaire's lament but more more fun and better yeah like so definitely this song always makes you think of legionnaire's lament because they're both songs about soldiers they're sort of low stakes sort of somewhat silly songs about soldiers yeah you know i described billy liar as kind of twee this song is very twee yeah, it's got a decent amount of glockenspiel. There's a so fair I think that's, amount of glockenspiel happening. That's gonna it's about that's as cutesy as it gets. Push the twee factor up to the next level. <laughs> I love. We laid on our mattresses and tumbled to sleep. Our eyes aligned, swaddled in our civvies, cradled in our dungarees. It's just, it's, it's so, so cute. It's cute. It's a cute song about soldiers. He also calls his his fellow soldier his bombazine doll i don't know what i don't know what bombazine is so bombazine is uh a twilled fabric so he's just calling him like you know my doll in a twill uniform and if i'm if i'm not mistaken the word stevedore is used in this song yeah is that correct do you know what a stevedore is do you know what a stevedore is oh i do <laughs> you tell me it came up in some of the research I oh, no. was doing earlier. <laughs> Are because you back to shanties? <laughs> well, a stevedore, while not a sailor, is very closely associated with the maritime trades. A stevedore is a longshoreman or someone who works on the docks and unloads ships. Matt, I have to tell you, I was interested in sailing and sea shanty until we started recording this podcast. 
you've killed any interest I had in this subject. Can I just admit something? Like, the entire time we've been doing this podcast, I have been craving Red Lobster. I don't know what it is. I mean, I assume because, you know, the sea is such a... You're saying if you were a stevedore, you would want to be a stevedore at Cheddar Bay? Yeah. Yeah, I would. (laughs) But I I, I just feel like there's something about the Decemberists that makes me crave uh, seafood. Specifically the kind that you get at a red lobster. Right. You you could go for like some jumbo fried shrimp. Coconut shrimp. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um. <laughs> hey, did you see 1917? I haven't seen it. Is it good? Yeah. I mean, they don't make a lot of movies about World War 1, uh and maybe maybe 1917. If that's the best that they can do, then maybe that's <laughs> wow. a good thing. Take that Sam Mendes. All all I'm saying is there's a movie that exists uh about the miracle at Dunkirk called Dunkirk and that it's it's like it's clearly like a lesser version of Dunkirk I love Dunkirk Dunkirk is an amazing film hey do you want to talk about Red Right Ankle uh let's talk about track eight Red Right Ankle this is the story of your red right ankle one of my all-time favorite Decemberist songs. It's so beautiful. It's like a gut-wrenchingly beautiful song. And so this song is written for Carson Ellis, who is a redhead with a lot of freckles, which Red Right Ankle is a reference to her freckles on her ankles. But first of all, just like the guitar work is very pretty. There's a lot of really good imagery in the lyrics. Uh, why do you like this song? It's got one of my favorite Decemberist lyrics in it, which I won't probably won't be able to quote exactly right but uh there's something about uh this is a this is a story this is the story of the boys who loved you who loved you now and loved you still who loved you now and loved you then some were sweet some were cold and snuffed you some just laid around in bed yeah and then the one after that that's like my favorite lyric some had crumbled you straight to your knees did it cruel did it tenderly some had crawled their way into your heart to rend your ventricles apart that whole yeah that whole verse is just it's some of my favorite lyrics see for me the second verse is the one that gets me it's the story of your gypsy uncle who you never we knew don't say that, he... we don't say that word anymore <laughs> sorry your <laughs> your g word uncle uh you know never... <laughs> Wow, you just ruined this for me. <laughs> but uh, that you, you know, she has this like old uncle who is this drifter who had this secret hideout and she found it. But in order to keep his secret safe, she threw the key away. I don't know. It's just, it's this neat little kind of sweet mini story. You know, I like, I think that Colin Malloy does really well with these songs where he does like each verse is like a window into a story. Um, I would say like engine driver kind of reminds me of this in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that the, the whole gypsy thing very much feels like a sort of short story prompt that you'd get in a creative writing class. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're given a key and you have to write a story about it. It's, it's just a really pretty song. It's sweet. Um, I guess it's kind of a love song, but like, not really. I guess it's a love, it's a love song in that love is kind of about thinking about somebody. Yeah, it definitely comes from a place of love. Right. But like, I feel like it's not about so many love songs are just surface level. Like I love you. You are cute. You make me happy. Whereas this is sort of a more kind of like lived in love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's a great song. It's, it's a standout for me. Anything else about red, right ankle? Uh, I did read that the, uh, the organ solo was played by the drummer, right? I think I read oh, that. Oh, Rachel Bloomberg did the organ? That's I think that's on the Wikipedia page. That's cool. So just a little. She's a multi-instrumentalist. All right. So now it's time to move on to track nine. Oh boy. I feel like we're going to talk about this one for a long time. The Chimbley Sweep. I don't, I don't really have a lot to say about this one. This song is a minefield for commentary. Are you kidding me? Well, I, I, I have to, this to say about it. It fucking rocks. <laughs> I love this song. You know, it's kind of interesting. Like, you could tell that this was their big concert closer before they had Mariner's Revenge song to play. 
If you've ever seen them live, they do some weird theatrics during this song when they play it. See, I don't remember. I'm sure I've seen them play it. I just don't remember that. Okay, so uh, before the widow comes into the story, there's this instrumental breakdown in the song where it kind of like the music kind of drifts into a lull. And that's when the widow comes in and talks. Hmm. You know what I'm talking about in this song? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And so when they do that live, they then ask all the audience to, like, sit or lay down and get really quiet. Oh, yeah. And then the band sits and lays down. Well, so they also sometimes during this part of the song live will do kind of like little plays. Like, they just get goofy during this song. I've seen them, like, swap instruments during this song. Um, But, like, one time, I'll never forget this. I saw them in... Uh, one time play this song and they did this little theatrical thing and they reenacted. Uh, I don't know if it was the battle of five armies or the battle of Pelennor fields, <laughs> which wow. was ridiculous. Uh, that's amazing. Because like, if you're going to get goofy while playing a song live, it might as well be this song, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, does it annoy you that they, that it's chimbly sweep and not chimney sweep? I feel like that's that's some sort of like cockney affectation. It is. Am I wrong? It is. Yeah. Although yeah. Dick Van Dyke's ridiculous chimney sweep was a chimney sweep, not a chimbly sweep. Do you think real chim- chimney sweeps like look at that as sort of appropriation they, and they're like mad about it? Maybe. Uh, about Dick Van Dyke, like sort of caricaturizing their noble profession. Do you think any Americans can hear the word chimney sweep and not just think of Mary Poppins? I mean, not... Not anymore. That's when I was a child, I wanted to be a chimney sweep because of Mary Poppins. Really? They made it look really fun. I mean, I, I, I liked Mary Poppins a lot. I never came away from it wanting to be a chimney sweep. (laughs) I, I did want to come away. I did come away from it wanting to be a rich banker though. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question because it's going to be very important as we discuss this song. How old do you think this chimney sweep is? (sighs) Okay. Let's let's just let's try to pick a time period. Let's just say we're probably industrial revolution. No, no. How right? old is this person? I I know. I know. But let's okay, start. Sure. Yeah, maybe what like time period is this taking place? Like, like late 1800s? Probably. Yeah. Uh so life inspect life expectancy maybe not that great. Uh you know, if you made it if you made it to be in your 30s or 40s, you're you're you you'd survive the worst of it. So let's no, say listen, Do you know that Low life expectancy is because so many people die when they're babies and children. It's not right. that people are a lot of people think that if like the life expectancy is 40, that there's all these like 40 year olds dying. That's not what that statistic is. If you live past childhood, you're going to live to old age. That's what I'm saying. He's made it past childhood. Right. Well, so you, don't, you, don't, you don't think this person <laughs> is a child. I don't think he's a child. He refers to himself as an orphan boy. At what point do you stop referring to yourself as a boy? If I was an orphan, I would milk that shit to my grave. (laughs) You're saying you as a 30 something year old man, were you an orphan would still call yourself an orphan boy. I'd be like, oh, I'm a little orphan. (laughs) Why would you do that? I mean, I know why. To get the ladies. Sympathy. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Because it works for this kid. (laughs) That's the song is a roadmap to to getting it done um here's the thing this uh this I, i'm gonna say this person's younger than you're thinking but okay. I, th- I think this person has some uh some mommy issues so you're thinking you're thinking like early teens what are you thinking i was gonna say 20s 20s no no we're talking early teens or preteen. whoa that's what i'm thinking so our different interpretations are going to be very important for the end of this song well, so are you are you referring to? I mean, do you want to just skip right ahead to? Let's go for it. What am I talking about? The widow character refers to the chimney sweep as a lowly urchin. Right. By the way, urchin is only children. No one who's yeah. not a child gets described as an urchin, unless it's like she's just like feeding into his character. He's like a twenty year old who's like really. Thing? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm a widow orphan. <laughs> I'm here to sweep your chimney. Well, and right. then she's like, oh. Lowly urchin, I have not been swept since the day my husband died. Now, here's the thing. This widow, when I hear widow, I'm immediately thinking this is an older woman. Well, don't think about it like that because we're in the Industrial Revolution when the life expectancy (laughs) is so low. And as you had previously stated, that means everyone's dying when they're 40. Nope. 
Nope. I think I heard you correctly. Nope. So you're just going worst case scenario. Like worst case scenario, head, this is this is a Harold and Maude type a, situation. This is a 70 year old woman <laughs> who's getting her getting her chimney swept by a 13 year old boy. <laughs> by a 13 year old boy. That's that's where your head goes immediately. That's exactly where my head goes. Yes. Well, so I think I go. You're imagining like, a hot widow. Yeah, hot widow, hot chimney sweep, and then just some some good old fashioned. But the fact cleaning. that she talks about her chimney not being swept for a long time, I'm thinking this is an old lady, and it's gross down there. So wow, she. But like, okay, so maybe her husband died. Like, I mean, maybe she married an older guy. And oh, she's a grave digger or a gold digger, not a grave well, digger. She, she might be a grave digger. We don't know her profession. That's it true. doesn't we come don't. up. We don't know her. Just widow. Widow is she's her a profession. Widow. Yeah. Professional widow. So maybe, you know, her her husband, probably a loveless marriage, I assume, you know, because most of them were back then. Uh, and yeah, she's just looking for a little something, something from a, from a widow orphan. <laughs> I mean, either way, this song is perverse, right? I don't know what what two consenting adults or consenting <laughs> seventy year old and consenting thirteen <laughs> what they do in the in the privacy of some sort of chimney having house right I'm okay uh, with but it, it's a fun song it's a funny song because of that and it rocks but also like there's like almost no lyrics to this song yeah. They don't need to be. It's very simple. It's very physical. Yeah. All right. Moving on to track number 10. I was meant for the stage. I was meant for the stage. I it's, was kind of, it's kind of funny because we'll talk about this with the next song. Because this feels like the album closer, right? So this, I believe this song sort of starts the tradition of the fake out close that I, I think that they do like for a while from, from, from this album on, they do like a kind of like a like showstopper and then they'll just kind of sneak a little something extra in. Which always makes me think of Abbey Road. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fair comparison. Cause you know, Abbey Road, you know, ends with this big grand kind of like song cycle. And then they just tack on Her Majesty, which is this little funny song right. that doesn't really belong there. Right. Just like a after dinner mint. So this is a this is a seven minute song. It's the second longest song on the album. And it is a it is a thesis statement if there ever was one. Yeah, this this is Colin Malloy's autobiography. I mean, it's certainly yeah, it's certainly a definite an interpretation that I, I think probably follows him around to this day, I'm sure. You know, there's not a whole lot lyrically to the song. It's just really all about your destiny being putting on shows. Mm-hmm. Whether, you know, you're going to make a living doing it or not, it doesn't matter because this is like all that I live for. When I hear this song, I think of the the episode of 30 Rock where Jenna Maroney complains about how she petitions the Tonys for giving an award for living theatrically. I think that's... That's what the song is is about. So Colin, in an interview, you know, I mentioned that there was an article I found where he picks out his favorite song off each album. It may or may not surprise you that this is his favorite song on this album. That does surprise me a little bit, honestly. I mean, just because it seems a little on the nose. So he said in that, um, he said, and this is a quote, that's as uh, concise a statement of purpose as I've ever written. Even though in my head it's not exactly me, I was imagining an aging thespian like Albert Finney or something. But also it was so much fun to play live because playing it live gave it new depth, especially in those years where uh, we were playing in like college cafeterias and shitty little clubs, there was something funny about a grand statement about being meant for the stage while playing in a beer-soaked rock club. Uh, Since then, now that we play bigger places and fancy theaters, it's lost some of its glimmer. It's lost its irony. Uh, It's sad, but it's an interesting journey that the song has taken. Okay. Yeah. Because there is a layer of irony to this song. Right. Right. It's a good song. It's a, I mean, like, like we we mentioned it's a good like closer like it's it's just it's got a big build and then it just keeps it keeps getting bigger and bigger and then just it just kind of ends with this sort of like a discordant kind of right 
clanging of instruments. I mean, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but like the end of, of uh, Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah, like absolutely. Like that big chord at the end. Mm-hmm. Yep. That also reminded me of uh, the end of Day in the Life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was meant for a stage, for the stage. I mean, not a lot to say about it. It's not like a... It's not like a standout track. It's not like a track I would put on a Decemberist mix if I was like, these are the best Decemberist songs. This is going to get you into the band. But I mean, it is an important song in terms of understanding the band and and sort of, yeah, what 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 they are. Well, and it's kind of funny because, like I said, Shanty for Arethusa really only works as an album opener. This song works especially well as an album closer. Um, and I do feel like they tend to end their albums with songs like this. But it isn't the album closer. It's not. But like, would you be okay if this, if the album ended like this? Yeah, for sure. Because this is a lot like California One Youth and Beauty Brigade. It reminds me of Sons and Daughters, right? It's an experience. Like you, I mean, you you feel like you've gotten through something by the end of the song. Like it really just like, you've come out on the other side of it. You exhale. Right. And then you, you listen to the next song. As I Rise. Silly. I love this song. This is kind of like, hey, remember how we do some like country western inspired numbers? We didn't do one for this album. Or did we? Or did we? No, I, uh, I, I just, yeah, this it's just such a fun little ditty. Yeah, it's a little ditty. That's exactly what it is. Colin seems to like Lottie Dawes. You know, uh, Carl Newman had a really good interview where he talked about nonsense words and how hard it is to come up with good nonsense words. And I think when you find when you find a good one, you just you just hold on to it. Yeah, he does a lot of laws and Lottie does for sure. I, it's it's just a fun little Americana song. I feel like it sounds it's, sonically it's different from the rest of the album. Like it's it seems like maybe it was recorded live in the studio or like kind of a yeah, one take. It's thing. got a little bit more of that kind of lo-fi. Like maybe they just put a mic in the middle of the room and had everyone play kind of thing. Sure, but it's yeah, yeah. it's just a simple little. Little kind of, I mean, country ditty, no stakes, just a chill little song. And it does, it's, it works as like, you know, you're like, what? There's another song. And then you're like, oh, that's cute. Yeah. And then the album's over. Yeah. But now that we've listened all the way through the album, do you get how I feel like this album has so much more energy than Castaways and Cutouts? Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's, I think it's a, it's a more polished version of Castaways. But like you take out your your cocoon and your clementine, right? Like, you know, you kind of leave those types of songs completely here. Yeah, there's no dead weight on this album. No, like I wouldn't skip any of these songs. I, I would skip one, but just not because it's a bad song, just because I would rather hear the song after it. So top track. Uh, this is a tough one. This is a tough one for me. Uh, I think it's going to end up being Red Right Ankle just because... It's such a it's such a sweet song. It's I don't know. It 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 pushes pushes all the right buttons for me. Yeah, I'm between Red Right Ankle and Milo Goldberg, but I think Red Right Ankle is it. It's just a it's just a great album start to finish. For sure. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. Yeah, it's time for the Pitchfork. Uh does Pitchfork still like the Decemberists? Our favorite segment. And this this was a best new music. Uh it got the best new music rating when it came out in two thousand and three. Okay. And uh, do you want the quote before you guess, or do you want to try to guess and then I'll give you the quote? Well, if it's best in music, it's at, it's at least in the eights, but I don't think they've ever given, given the December album anything above an eight. I don't think it's gotten the nines. So I'd guess like an eight four. You're off by two. It's an 8.2 this time. Okay. You're, you're off okay. by 8.2. Uh, so it's it's ranked, uh, rated less than... Than uh, Castaways and Cutouts, actually. They liked Castaways and Cutouts a little bit more. Hmm. Uh, but again, not, I mean, they had nothing bad to say about this album. They really liked it. Uh, and then here's here's the pull quote um, from the uh, reviewer Chris Dolan. Maybe from here they'll become an esoteric cult band, or maybe they'll just keep getting better. Either way, the Decemberists have already established themselves so thoroughly that I was able to make it through an entire review without comparing them to Neutral Milk Hotel or Nick. <laughs> 
or name-checking Edward Gorey. They're an unclassifiable American original, and they could turn out to be one of our best. Wow. Yeah. That's very high praise. I mean, but that's, that's the thing is that they already feel so much more comfortable in their own skin with this album. Yeah. Like they're not pulling their punches at all. It's it's a great album. I would say I like it more than I like it more than Castaways, I think. Yeah, it's kind of I, I would totally agree. And I think that before I started this intentional chronological listen, I would have probably had trouble picking between these two albums. I'm going to be honest. I would have trouble differentiating between these two albums before this listen <laughs> because. But they are very different. I mean, yes, they're they sound very different. But, I, you know, I think there's just a lot of like similar kinds of songs on both albums. Well, it's kind of funny because I feel like there's so much in this album that is very much a precursor to picaresque more so than I think I even realized. Knowing where they're going makes it easy to see those sort of connective tissues, I think. But yeah, this is a killer album. I think that if you were going to introduce someone to the Decemberists, I think you would do pretty well to give them this album over Castaways, I think. Yeah, I mean, if they can if they can make it through Shanty. You know, I just wish I knew more about Shanties. Well, I have one more one more God, no, tidbit. I was a joke. Do not. <laughs> I'm Do just not. saying I had never once thought I would be clicking on a link that said miscellaneous deep water sea shanties. But <laughs> I did and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed what I saw on the other side of that link. Just just the idea that there's so many deep water sea shanties. Just that you stop. Would, you would need just to stop. Like, <laughs> you couldn't even classify them all. But yeah. So just, go on. Well, I was just going to, I was going to pr- try to bring it on home. Unless do you have something else? No, I was just going to say that uh, our next episode will not be about a full length album. That's right. Yeah. So they, they sort of start a tradition after, after this to put out an EP between. And actually two EPs came out between this album and Picaresque, which maybe we should tackle both of those in the next episode. Yeah. Well, that. That's a good idea because it's a pretty, so th- there's an EP of kind of cast offs from this album, uh, the Billy, Billy Liar EP. So we'll talk about that one next time. And then a more substantial EP called the Tane. Yes. Which I'm very excited to talk about. Well, I think it's your turn to do a send off. Oh boy. Okay. Well, uh, so this has been We Both Podcast Together. I've been Matt Esner. I've been Pete Wissinger. And until next time, sea shanties and sea songs are different. So just don't make the mistake of trying to lump them together. Uh, Till next time, I'll be swaddled in my civvies. Oh, that's good. I actually like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.